0: Hello everyone. Happy Thursday. Today is a mixed bag for me in terms of happy. Uh, I've decided the day is going to be amazing though, because last night I finally sold this couch I've been trying to offload from my life for months. Here's what happened. I bought a couch to replace mine, but when it arrived, I realized I didn't like it. So I've just had these two couches side by side and my apartment looks like a hostel. And I've just been walking around asking people if they knew like nine people who needed somewhere to sit. Last night, a kind gentleman I met online came over and bought it. Of course, my girlfriend came over too, and we pretended to be in a a couple in case he tried to kill me. I'm thrilled. Now, the mixed bag part comes in where, on the way home from visiting my neighborhood coffee shop this morning, a bird pooped directly onto my coffee cup, just released directly onto the cup. But hey, it wasn't into the cup, so still good. All right, excited for today's episode because I have a bit of a pop culture celebrity to share with you. But first, give me three minutes on the timer to share the latest privacy headlines. The big news this week, of course, is that Uber's former chief security officer was convicted of obstruction of justice for lying to the FTC about a 2016 data breach and instead quietly paying off hackers that breached the company. The judge in the trial hasn't set a date for sentencing. When I first heard this, I thought about that provision in the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, stating that CPOs specifically could be held liable for future violations of that law. But Whitney Merrill, who's brilliant and who you've heard on this podcast before, tweeted an important distinction between that kind of liability and, well, lying. She said, it's not that CISOs should now freak out that they're next. You just shouldn't lie to regulators who are already investigating your company. The Washington Post reported on this story, interestingly, that this could be the first and last criminal case against the C-suite over a hack because, quote, in the five years since Sullivan was fired, payoffs to extortionists, including those who steal sensitive data, have become so routine that some security firms and insurance companies specialize in handling the transactions. end quote. Michael Hamilton of security firm Critical Insights told the Post that paying ransom is actually so common now that, quote, there is an attitude that's similar to a fender bender. End quote. It's possible Sullivan will appeal this case, so we'll see what happens. Next, the Colorado Attorney General released some draft regulations on compliance with the Colorado Privacy Act. I asked FPF's Pierre Lamont and my old pal at Hush Blackwell, David Stoss, to talk about the high-level points. I've got a blog post coming out on that, but, and for sure, check out David's blog on this. He's got all the details. But the headlines for now are on the expansion of what's to be considered sensitive data, a much more onerous DPIA process, kind of similar to what we see in the California Children's Code, and seemingly a diversion on acceptable global opt-outs an expansion, really. The AG is asking for comments up until February, when it will hold its first public hearing on this. Finally, Google has settled for $85 million with a- the state of Arizona for allegedly tracking users' location with deceptive and unfair practices to sell advertisements, the Arizona Attorney General's office has announced. USA Today reports that the Attorney General started investigating whether Google was misleading consumers on how it was tracking and using their location data based on a 2018 AP report alleging as much. So in May 2020, Arizona's AG sued Google for allegedly tracking people's location, even if they were told to stop when users turned off the location tracking. Okay, on to today's episode. Have you seen The Great Hack on Netflix? If not, you must. You must. Obviously, we all know about the Facebook-Cambridge Analytica situation. Although Cambridge Analytica is now dead, dead, so dead, Facebook's just now settling lawsuits filed as a result. To refresh your memory, Facebook sold 87 million users' data to Cambridge Analytica to help target users with information or misinformation and get Donald Trump elected president in 2016. It was a massive, explosive revelation, and at the center of it really was Professor David Carroll. Carol will explain in detail, but basically, it was his experiment to legally challenge UK-based Cambridge Analytica to provide the data it had on file about him, an American, under UK uh, data privacy law. And he wanted to find out what he could find out, and that was essentially the beginning of the end for Cambridge Analytica. A Wired profile said it well, so I will borrow. In a profile of Carol, it said, quote, but if he won, Carroll believed he could prove an invaluable point. He could use that trove of information he received to show the world just how powerless Americans are over their privacy. He could offer up a concrete example of how one man's information, his supermarket punch card, his online shopping habits, his voting patterns, can be bought and sold and weaponized by corporations and even foreign entities trying to influence elections. But more importantly, he could show what's possible in countries like the UK, where people actually have the right to reclaim some of that power. He could prove why people in the United States who have no such rights deserve those same protections. End quote. So this chat, it really gives me college professor vibes since after all, Carol is a professor by trade at Parsons in New York City. So I really just sunk into this one and imagined I was back in a classroom setting, philosophizing on the importance of privacy to democracy itself with this professor. Hey, I'm in Austin next week. My team will be there. We're speaking at the event and exhibiting. And it's very possible that I'll be recording a podcast from the conference itself with a handy little portable recorder I've got. So if you're at PSR and you want to chat either on the podcast or off, let me know. Maybe you can come on the show for a hot second. Love you. Talk soon. All right, so... Part of the reason that I'm so excited to have you, among other reasons, is that this is probably my first bona fide celebrity to to be on the show. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, why you're a celebrity? How did that happen?
1: Well, maybe a celebrity in in certain nerdy circles. Um, It's probably because of, of being a subject in a Netflix documentary, in particular the documentary called The Great Hack, which... Uh, came out in the summer of 2019 um, in the aftermath of a big scandal that occurred in 2018, but was really percolating much before that. Um, So indeed, the controversies that swirled around the 2016 presidential election, the Brexit referendum, the new questioning of the role of social media and technology and society and democracy and kind of privacy anxieties just sort of exploding uh, it was a real turning point point. and just so i just was sort of there at the start and um i think i provided for the documentary um a kind of narrative thread to tell a complicated story around really intricate abstract ideas um so the filmmakers really proved me wrong when they first approached me that a film like that could be made and be successful and it, it could you could communicate to a mass audience uh, what normally is um, discussions among academics and lawyers and policy people and, and really wonky stuff.
0: Tell me about your relationship to and with Cambridge Analytica.
1: I teach at a uh, art and design school in a, a technology focused graduate program called Design and Technology. And so I've always been in the industry and the field. Um, and so always aware of the role of digital advertising and the ad tech industry and even was a, a, a I t- attempted to do a startup myself out of research with grad students and, and tried to you know become a tech bro basically. And that business failed, but I really learned the industry. I learned about the ad tech industry and the publishing industry and the data supply chain, the Loomiscape, all that stuff as a function of becoming an entrepreneur, but also as a an educator to, 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 teach, uh, students who want to go into the industry, what, what it is they're getting into. So, um, and so that was why I was primed to be looking at digital in the 2016 election cycle. Cambridge Analytica was on people's radar as like, this is the Republican answer to the Obama digital machine. Um, and so it was of interest to me, um, related to that and i also was making a voice on social media particularly twitter as a kind of you a, a rare american who was worried about the data privacy practices of the industry and that caught the attention of european re- researchers and activists in particular one person paul olivier dehay um, a, a mathematician um, who is uh, based in Switzerland? And he is a, was a kind of pioneer of using European data protection law to um, get companies to disclose user information. And he was actually looking for an American to test out a hypothesis about Cambridge Analytica. And because I had sort of been online worried about privacy, he convinced me to do it. And what he convinced me to do is. Even before Trump was inaugurated, uh, we put in a data request uh, using uh, UK law in particular. And the point of the request was, you know, to see what would happen. If they gave data, then it would prove that data was exported out of the United States and into the United Kingdom. And therefore, UK law would apply, which would be a remarkable occasion, I would Guess perhaps hopefully the first time that U.S. voter profiling data was internationally transferred as a function of the official campaign, but it created this like um, kind of uh, this opportunity for transnational regulatory arbitrage or a kind of blip in the time space continuum because. Because Steve Bannon, you know, wanted it to be a British thing, or for whatever reason that it was actually a British company, the the data was sent there. And so they responded with data. It wasn't adequate data. It wasn't satisfactory. But it, it certainly proved the first layer of the hypothesis. The second layer of the hypothesis was that the company Cambridge Analytica was a thin facade for a British military contractor. Uh, called SCL Group, which did, did work for um, all levels of the military industrial complex and state departments and um, all manner of of kind of work, especially after the 9-11 event and started trying to win hearts and minds um, in, in sort of the psychological aspects of the war on terror. And the concern was that methods and techniques that were developed there were being transposed for use in elections. And so simply by asking for the data, we proved that second layer of the hypothesis because um, the email address that gave me the data was not from Cambridge Analytica, it was from SCL Group. And the the signatory on the letter was not a a director from Cambridge Analytica, but rather a man named Julian Wheatland, who was a director of the the parent company. And he, in fact, appears in the documentary on Netflix, The Great Hack. He's the only Cambridge executive that appears willingly <laughs> in the movie. And um, and so the sort of the right even before Trump was inaugurated, we knew that he had done something really weird with American data. And then that story was was known about by the filmmakers. So they wanted to follow me very early on through the journey. And so um, in another little tidbit about the movie, you know, they were, they were nominated uh, for the Academy Award, the pr- previous cycle for a movie called The Square, which is the story of the Egyptian revolution in Tahrir Square. And it's an amazing movie because you sort of go on the journey th- with this one character through the... The whole experience, and when you you know get nominated, you can do whatever you want. So Netflix says, "Make us a movie about the the Sony hack, about North Korea you know, hacked Sony," and you know, they're like, "We don't really want to make that movie. We want to make this movie about Cambridge Analytica." And so they got in really early on the story, uh, which allowed them to penetrate it more deeply than other people who were also working on documentaries. Actually, so um, I think that was part of the success of, um, the movie is that they found a story that people could relate to because it was a simple idea of like, so yeah, can we get our data and what is that going to be like? Um, it was a, it was a great kind of way to make us a very complicated idea of transnational regulatory arbitrage, um, understandable to the everyday person. And because it was related to the foundation of democracy, It struck a chord like no other kind of data privacy scandal before.
0: And I mean, you must feel kind of good about it. I mean, to me, and maybe I misunderstand the situation, but that really spurred on what would eventually become the end of Cambridge Analytica, right? That was essentially the outcome.
1: Yeah, it was frustrating for me because by by bringing attention to it at the level that we did... When I say we, I mean um, being a source for many reporters who covered it, um, that it then created a condition for the company to go out of business because its reputation had been permanently destroyed. In fact, there's a great scene where the executive I was just talking about, Julian Wheatland, reflects on, on how toxic the brand became instantly and there would be no way for it to continue as a concern. And unfortunately, what this did is this then triggered the moratorium of bankruptcy, insolvency, liquidation on the company, which then foreclosed my ability to actually carry a data protection lawsuit forward. And I was very confident by the barristers, top barristers who worked on the case, that it was a slam dunk case and that the implications were immense from the case because it wasn't just about me and my data, it was that all registered voters, not just 87 million Facebook users who had their data sold to Cambridge Analytica by a developer, uh, those are the exact words of Zuckerberg in the congressional hearings, um, (laughs) um, that uh, it it, it implicated all registered voters, that the entire voter roll was in Cambridge Analytica's hands in Europe and was um, enriched with um, various kinds of legitimate and illegitimate data. And that the profiling politically of people in Europe under the GDPR and its predecessor uh, laws and directives is prohibited without the proper knowledge, consent, and associated rights and so on, which of course Cambridge Analytica did nothing of the sort. And so the whole operation was technically illegal in the UK, where the data was. Creates a weird blip in, well, what does that mean? And of course, the bankruptcy liquidation meant we couldn't really litigate that out. What instead got litigated, what the judges allowed to happen, was because I had filed a lawsuit and filed a complaint with the regulator in the UK, the Information Commissioner's Office, who was the regist- which had you know the registered data controller for Cambridge Analytica was this SCL Group company. So, again, the first data request sort of validated that the that there the the UK data cops would be on this beat, and sure enough, they recognized it right away, even over Twitter when um, I publicized the results of the data request, and it sort of immediately went into investigative mode. And then when I filed the complaint, that, of course, uh, created a more official investigation, and it, it interwove we- with then the ICO's investigation of Facebook itself. And so even though the company Cambridge and SCL were put under liquidation, the judge allowed... Elizabeth Denham, the information commissioner at the time, to criminally prosecute SCL Group while in administration for ignoring her order to fully respond to the data request that we had filed. That, interestingly, here's another bl- 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 blip of legal history that I picked up. The law that I used was the UK Data Protection Act of 1998. So it was pre GDPR, actually. G- GDPR, ironically, came into force just after the scandal broke in the spring of 2018. Uh, And so that law made it so that if you ignore the regulator on their enforcement order, that that's a criminal offense. G- the GDPR actually like lightens that offense it's it's no longer a, cr- a criminal offense so the last opportunity we c- had to to use that criminal pe- penalty we it then you know now now it's gone and in fact it was the only um o- the only way that the company admitted to any f- uh you know responsibility it was the only accountability that was ever really held up to the company because it was a way to pierce the moratorium that was protected through the bankruptcy insolvency. The LLC, the Delaware LLC, was basically abandoned in Chancery in Delaware. And the company was liquidated into a holding company that the family that um, created Cambridge Analytica out of the British military contractor, uh, the Mercer family, they just, you know, folded – the company into another company. And then now there's another company they created, which is going after Alexander Nix, the disgraced CEO, um, to try to recover lost assets and get back at him for, uh, they're basically blaming him, I guess, for ruining their their data consultancy that they had built to advance their political interests. So it's a, the story is still like kind of cranking through the international apparatus um we're seeing the like detritus of it kind of get pressed out whether it's like the settlement of the class action in california or even the weird ways that the mercers are still working the system uh in their favor
0: and <clears throat> if i'm correct facebook just recently moved to settle the cambridge analytica lawsuit against it
1: yes that's been a case that's been really interesting to follow it's really the class action of the sort of 87 million people who took action, got into a class, those all those lawsuits were consolidated into one case. The case has been pretty interesting to watch. And the 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 Facebook's lawyers have been very aggressive and have basically been sanctioned by the judge for their behavior, which has created conditions that had pushed them towards settlement, it seems. And the discovery coming out of the case is also really damaging and damning to Facebook. So again, you can see just just from just from like a layperson's just like looking at it, you can see why they settled because it was getting ugly, and they settled right before the depositions of Zuckerberg and Sandberg were scheduled, and that is something that the company is clear, clearly will pay any price for. There's no amount of money too big to avoid depositioning deposing them on this topic. We saw that. There, you know, there's allegations from shareholders that they settled for five billion dollars with the FTC for Cambridge Analytica as a price tag to avoid deposition. Mm. So the way that the truth has been obscured by the Mercers and the way that they conveniently liquidated and the way that Zuckerberg and Sandberg have avoided deposition means the scandal is always sort of will be clouded with mystery.
0: We know that data brokers <clears throat> are a really big problem. We Just yesterday, the FTC held a public meeting about this proposed rule. Um, it's endeavoring right now on commercial surveillance, and data brokers were a big topic. Um, since Cambridge Analytica came down and since Facebook had to face um, at least some litigation and eventually the settlement, do you think that Facebook learned its lesson and the Cambridge Analyticas of tomorrow are looking at this and saying, oh, gosh, like we, you know, this can't be the business model because look how it ends. Or do you think that there are more Cambridge Analyticas out there and more to come and Facebook, as long as it can make money, will always enter into partnerships with these types of companies?
1: Yeah, it's a it's interesting question and a lot sort of depends on, you know, what Cambridge Analytica shorthand means to any one person in any given context I think it's now a signifier that means different things to different people you know in the in its loosest sense it's just like the the shorthand for bad privacy scandals um, but like an, another way to look at it is you know the um, the sort per- of perversion of campaign f- finance reform and and other, others see it as a more international, um problem of of a of a rising international fascist movement so it's it's and a sort of form of digital colonialism even the way that this british company of aristocrats was dabbling in the uh, ma- managing elections around the world um and and pitting people against each other to on on behalf of clients that was the business model so um it depends what part of the story you think has been ended by the scandal being so public i hope that the internationalization of the voter data industry is not going to proceed as it might have the really alarming overlap between the military industrial complex and the electioneering in- industry i hope has not going to continue as it m- might have but then the question of you know the practices of campaigns is that going to be any different And probably not because Cambridge Analytica was really just employing industry best practices at the time with regards to the way that it did targeting and data brokering and profiling and used tactics that, you know, on the baseline were just what everybody does in campaigns. What they did differently were the elements that were more nefarious that we know about in addition to using essentially illegal data. Um, you know that that t- that tainted the the whole ca- campaign because of this like illegal data set that that really did infiltrate the whole RNC operation, I believe. And so, um, I don't think that it's going to change how elections are. T- you know you what? Know, how like advertising technology and social media technology is used to do elections. That's not really changing. Um, but it also has changed. The appetite for regulation and laws, and so the what's most significant is the effect of these laws on the underlying ad tech business. Things like the the sort of retirement of the third party cookie, eventually things like um, laws like CCPA, CCPA, and GDPR being enforced, and then sort of having that effect, um, and then the general sort of consumer awareness of being more. That a, a privacy consciousness is a more popular idea than it was before the cataclysm of Cambridge Analytica. That people are more privacy defensive, and we can see this when Apple did app transparency tracking in iOS 15 or 14, um, uh, where they suddenly gave people a clear choice in a in a in a user interface where they said, do you want to be tracked? Yes or no. It was the first time consumers had ever been asked that honest question up front. And it was no surprise that a, a single digit percentage said, yes, please track me. It was probably the people who work in advertising and marketing said yes. So, <laughs> um, so, And so that really upended the whole data ecosystem. And we saw Facebook stock collapse, Snapchat laid off 20%. Shopify got hit hard. It really reshaped the way that data is flowed in the supply chain, and um, Apple, you know, had the marketability to do that because of the backlash, and and we saw the sort of market choice m- market effects play out. So there was a, a simultaneous kind of regulatory um, surge and then a kind of market surge, and they, they were interrelated.
0: I know that one thing you're passionate about is the role that data privacy and data protection plays in functioning democracies. And I would agree with you that there has been a consumer surge. I mean, we're seeing that reflected in, you know, some of, for example, Apple's advertising or this proliferation of state laws um, and the appetite to start passing them in lieu of a federal law. So I'm wondering, as someone who's really been entrenched in these issues and really seen the way that the subversion of data protection privacy laws can impact a vote, for example, how do you feel about the future of democracy given the state that we're in now?
1: Yeah, I think um, we are at pivotal moments, seemingly always, but but in, in this regard. Um, f- so, for example, after we felt this Privacy anxiety related to democracy and elections. The next thing that hit us as a people was the COVID nineteen pandemic, and then a whole new way of worrying about data privacy and protection as a function of a, a plague. <laughs> it was like straight out of Foucault, basically. And then, um, and then, then we got hit. Um, you know, with um, the fall of of Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision, and you know even i even ironically like the supreme court's own privacy was eroded as a draft leak occurred and we knew it was coming and then it came and it created then a whole new dimension of privacy worst nightmares coming true things like data brokers selling device identifiers of people who had visited abortion clinics is now a hot commodity in the context of vigilante laws that deputize the enforcement of laws onto private citizens who then get bounties by uh, snitching on people. Uh, They've created a marketplace for data to entrap people. It's a a horrible situation that just one, one sliver of how the fall of Roe should highlight to all Americans that the right of privacy is fundamental to autonomy and liberty in the most pure possible way. It Goes deeper than elections. It goes deeper than viruses, and um, and, and that it's like it's how you can like live your life and 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 wills and does your data produce you know um, a target on your back um, as a business model. So um, we are really at a horrifying low place, and according to Justice Alito, the author of of much of the opinion, you know, the fact that the United States Constitution and 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 Congress has not specifically enumerated privacy rights—that's the big reason why they can smash these things down. So just on that idea alone, we can r- recognize and be reminded of how Europe is so enlightened, having enshrined basic data protection rights into its charter, its founding document, as a fundamental human right. Really, the GDPR is simply just enforcing what's in their constitution, if, if we could like use that metaphor. And we don't have that, so therefore that's why we don't have any good privacy law protection. It's not enumerated. What's exciting about the state laws is they're starting to specifically enumerate these rights. And a national law would do that as well in new ways. That would be really transformative for us because we really have nothing, and we obviously need quite specific things written out.
0: <laughs> and I think you were a big fan, I, I believe, of the uh, American Data Privacy and Protection Act. You liked its provisions and and where that was headed. I use the past tense. I mean, it's still alive, but barely.
1: Yes, I tried to express enthusiasm around it because on the baseline you know i think it's so important to enumerate and it does that and it does um it it's a national privacy law that is so much stronger than what was imagined before cambridge analytica for example that that cambridge analytica helped cause the ccpa and the ccpa then helped drive the ad ADPA bill as i call it and it's a it's a process of f- federalism where the states are in in, innovating and puts pressure on Washington and also unfortunately creates this like untenable, awkward position now where, you know, California wants to feel special. And so, um, so I I don't know, you know, what, what, uh, what, what's going to happen with it, but I'm really pleased that it got out of committee and it really shows that there is an interest and there's bipartisan unity around it. It's one of those rare policy issues where you actually could find common ground, most you can't. So this there's much promise just on a conceptual level, and my you know the 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 I do hope that if it doesn't happen in this Congress, it's it's reprioritized in the next one because every passing day the situation gets worse, and we just find more and more scandals and more and more abuse, and there's there's only we there's no we don't we just need the rights to be instantiated, and then a whole kind of new regime of protecting them. And yes, it's going to be super expensive for business. Yep. It's going to cost a lot of money to re-architect platforms. Yep. And lawyers are going to make a lot of money. Yep. Yep. All the things they complain about are true, but that's what it's going to take.
0: I'm wondering how you feel about enforcement these days. Because I think, you know, once the GDPR passed, everyone sort of thought that, like, The day after it passed, like May 20th, I think it passed on May 25th, or it came into effect May 25th, 2018, everyone thought like May 26th, like, you know, someone's totally screwed. Uh, And then the the process happened a lot more slowly than I think people expected. These investigations take time. They involve involve negotiations with fancy lawyers and, you know, uh, the DP, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner, you know, with so many tech companies headquartered in Ireland, in Dublin has taken a lot of heat for that. We're starting to see now, I think, the expe- w- what people had, uh, what's more in line with the expectations folks had about GDPR fines. Um, most recently, we saw that Instagram uh, got fined $400 million. Um, are you feeling better about the fact that laws are at least being enforced and companies are having to pay the price? Or is a fine like $400 million for a company like Instagram? Um you know, I think one person commented on a on a tweet that you put out that said it's a sting on an elephant, um, which I liked. What's what are your thoughts on the enforcement landscape these days?
1: Sure, I mean, as I, I mentioned earlier, there are certain you know regulatory escape hatches that uh, money is no object, such as executive depositions. So there is a calculus of cost of doing business with all of this stuff, um, absolutely. And um, you know, at what point do the fines? Um, just sort of institutionalize the behavior Uh, i you know think it's an interesting point certainly the gdpr ratcheted things up so by a a sort of order of magnitude um that's quite significant and then the the one you mentioned about uh, instagram it's such a narrow um actually violation it's just a tiny slice of of their problems it just looked at like i we understood it like just that that Kids accounts were public by default, and they could be converted to business accounts, which spilled out their personal data. This is a very popular thing that, that, that young girls do very popular and and I know this and and so wait, tell
0: me more about that
1: <laughs> that kids will convert we're converting their Instagram accounts to business accounts for the additional features that the business account Got and the way that they could circumvent like other kinds of protections that were put on them, so and it, as a result, like it sort of spills out personal data as you would think a business would want <laughs> their information out there. Certain things like phone numbers and such, so a real mess uh, and, a, and a and a and a kind of loophole that you know, of course, they knew was going on. I mean, there's no way they wouldn't know this, and and so you know, so they they got that that fine is just really for that. There's so many other things they could get nailed for. So um, I think that also gives me hope that they're taking kind of surgical approaches with like what they can do. They can like, that's obviously, we can get support behind, like that's just negligence or just bad growth hacking, you know?
0: I wanted to talk about the course, Dark Data. And, um, you know, given that you have such rich experience in this um, and are coming at it not as a privacy practitioner, where I think it's sometimes difficult to convey to people the really big picture, you know, you kind of get stuck in the operational details and you lose the narrative of like, why does this actually matter? Who is actually being harmed? um, or what is actually being harmed? And so I'm curious as you teach your course, dark data, first of all, I'd love for you to just tell us briefly, um, what that's all about. And yeah, what do you tell the students who are interested in working, you know, in industries, uh, that would you know it it, in related industry is moving forward
1: Mm -hmm. yeah uh yeah so this class dark data is a a seminar that i teach uh at parsons it it really tries to be the class that maybe people think i'm teaching in the movie the great hack (laughs) (laughs) um does students
0: come to you and they're like i I I took this class because i saw the documentary
1: um that that has happened. Uh but it's also happened where I like on the first day, I like, has anybody heard of the Great Hack? And not a single person raises their hand. <laughs> so both things happen actually. Okay. Um but it all depends on the algorithm if uh, they've been recommended the movie or not. Fair,
0: right? fair. <laughs> yep. Touché. Touché.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the class um, you know, is really like you said, it's it's by a non privacy practitioner for non-privacy practitioners really targeted at yeah people who will be adjacent or in the industry in different ways you know the sort of prototypical student is like someone who will go into UX at one of these companies and will be mm-hmm. like designing the the interfaces that are the 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 manipulation right on the surface the the or the way that that data is converted into behavioral Preferences and
0: yeah, be, so you know, behavioral
1: nudging. So yeah. the sort of the people who are responsible for you know designing so called dark patterns, the UXs that make you do what you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And so you know, but there's also other kinds of students. Um, I have students from all over the university this semester, um, different kinds of pro- programs. Um, who you know, there's just a so wide interest in the issue, the the idea that like data and privacy is quite central to different parts of society that people hadn't realized before. So anthropologists are just as interested as a textile designer. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's really, it's really remarkable. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I have this great variety of students. The course is broken into two parts. Uh, act one is like figuring out the history and the defining the terms and like really figuring out the basic concepts, things like, um, you know, (sighs) Um, the attention economy or visual surveillance or the origins of surveillance you know out of colonialism or racism and also trying to locate you know how algorithmic bias you know will become is is a major issue the ethical issues fraught this are all structural so again, kind of laying the groundwork for that and then the second part of the class is an international comparative study so we look at the U S versus the EU and try to figure out like learn the differences as a way to figure out what's going on. And then we look at India and China also very different, but different from the other two. So like, what are the four dominant models? Mm. How do they differ from each other? And then we also look at the rest of the world, use that term because that's like what (laughs) Facebook
0: uses.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And, 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 and this gives the students a kind of uh, a way to be internationally aware and, and use like through comparison, you understand the differences are the the contours that you have to find, um, and so, and then we publish a zine, basically like a di- digital zine, at the end of the semester. And the students really are they do the they they do the design, they they, they write the articles, the ed- they edit it. I'm just sort of the publisher, and um, and that's part of the class, putting the work out there, doing it in public, as opposed to like a paper that you know just you and the TA reads or whatever. It's it's much better, I think, to put these ideas out there uh, and to make work that you want to put for the public. That was a big lesson for Cambridge Analytica to me, that you just do the work in public, and then that's how you engage. You just got to use radical transparency with your methodology.